The Kinky Cocktail Hour is brought to you by Motor Bunny, the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator that offers fabulous creative sexual experiences. We use it and it rotates, it vibrates, and it delivers mind-blowing orgasms. Enjoy Motor Bunny as your favorite sex toy. When you order the Motor Bunny, multiple attachments are included along with the link controller, which allows wireless control from anywhere. Motor Bunny is the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator on earth. Use the link in the show notes and spice up your sex life with a Motor Bunny. You're listening to Kinky Cocktail Hour, a conversation between adults about sex-forward relationships, kinky lifestyles, and frank communication. If you're under 18, please stop listening and visit scarletteen.com. I'm Lady Petra. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm Sapphire Master. My pronouns are him, his, and he. And this is Kinky Cocktail Hour. Cheers! Cheers. So what are we drinking tonight? We are drinking a pear elderflower martini. Sure is pretty. <laughs> Grey goose pear in it, two parts, and then quarter part of elderflower liqueur. And a part of lemon juice, a part of simple syrup, but I use the mixture stuff and then garnish with a pear. Sure is pretty. Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of taken by this pear uh, vodka. vodka? Yeah. I know. I like it. It's like drinking pear juice. Kind of. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Except it's loaded. It's loaded pear juice. <laughs> I like it. I do too. Well, I'm excited about this conversation we're going to have uh-huh. this evening. We have Ed, who is part of a leather family. He plays with fire. He mm-hmm. plays with liquid nitrogen. Yeah. We have a lot to learn from Ed. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the conversation, Ed. Uh, I'm glad I'm here. As you know, my name is Ed. I'm known on the East Coast as DC Ed Ninja or Ed Ninja. But today they're going to call me Ed because I'm kind of a casual, informal person. And I thank you for allowing me to have this conversation with you. We're excited to hear from you, Ed. We ordinarily begin this experience by inviting you to share your journey in kink. So why don't you just sort of give us the book? Like, when did you discover yourself as a kinkster? And how did you get involved? And what have you grown into since then? Well, I started almost 20 years ago. I can't say 20 because 20 is what every fake kinkster or dominant person says when they're lying. So I've been here almost 20 years. Uh, I started in North Carolina. Uh, I first started reading a lot. I went and bought books like Screw the Roses and things like that. And I got so interested into it, I started searching online for places to meet people. There was a Triangle Munch Group in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And on an, an early in January, I went to their newbie munch and meeting and I showed up and I was the only person there other than the president because it was an ice storm, but I wanted to be there. So I slid up there and I slid back. And then the next month I showed up and uh, I learned more and more about kink and people and really started throwing myself into it. And I would show up every month. 
I ended up moving from where I was in North Carolina to farther south, closer to Wilmington, and got involved in the Keaton community there. Ended up help run one of the clubs in the area. Realized that we only held two events a month there and wanted more. So I would either travel to Raleigh, which was two plus hours away, or I would travel to Charlotte, which was two plus hours away, and got to meet a lot of people and got to learn a lot and develop new skills and really enjoyed and knew that I felt that I needed to. And I was there for quite a while till about 12 years ago when uh, they decided to retire my job. So I was without and a headhunter found me a job in DC and I moved up to DC. While in DC, I got involved with the Crucible, which is uh, the premier club uh, on the East Coast. I was a volunteer there and I worked my way up and I'm one of the assistant managers. I got involved in several groups up here. The Kent community was so huge up here. I could go to something every night. So I got to meet a lot of people and really enjoy myself. I got into teaching about 14 or 15 years ago and started teaching all different kinds of things from rough body play and electro stem and violet wands to now my most popular things are fire play and liquid nitrogen. And I still continue on even through the pandemic and things are closed down up here. We still try to stay in touch with each other and still try to stay motivated. Got it. And I'm really fascinated. So I understand that you're involved in a leather family. Is that true? Uh, right now I am in no real family. I've had some relationships, but you know, you give it time. It works. It works. It doesn't. It doesn't. Everybody has to find what fits them and works with them. And I'm happy to help people on their journey. You know, sometimes you meet somebody and you think that's a connection and you go with that connection. And uh, eventually maybe that connection doesn't really work right for you or the other person. And you agree and you allow people to move on and they allow you to move on and you stay friends. You still care for them. Uh, and I'm in that stage right now where I'm like in between. It's really hard to meet people and talk to people and actually see people with the pandemic. So I'm just, you know, trying to be the best me that I can and try to improve on what I can improve. So I'm a better person than I was yesterday. Got it. What is the pull of a leather family? I'm not familiar with that construct here in the Seattle area, but it seems like on the East Coast, there's quite a lot of leather communities that get together and fall apart as you described. So what's the pull of a leather family? It's this, a lot of times it's the structure. There's something you want or you need. I am a daddy at heart. Uh, I'm very polyamorous at heart. Uh, and so I look for people that are willing to accept the polyamorous lifestyle and either want a daddy or want somebody that's there to help mentor them and try to work with them to try to help them be a better them as well as me be a better me. So a lot of times, some of the meta families are just because there's a mutual experience. You know, they were raised up in leather with the similar people. So there's a link there. I went to MTTA here, which is the Masters Training Academy that was started by Master Tiano who runs the MSC conference up here. He's been doing it for, oh my God, probably 20 years or more. He's one of the preeminent people promoting the MS community up here. So I'm involved with that, as well as like, I consider the Crucible my family. And I've developed friendships within them. And I actually have 
a couple of other groups that I belong to that are close to my heart. So I'm kind of all over the place, but really not. So you talked about the structure of a leather family. So give us an example of what that structure construct is. In a master-slave dynamic, the slave is looking for some form of structure. If they're a service slave, they're looking to serve. And they're looking on what they need to serve that master. And the master will provide an outline. Uh, in turn, uh, the master's looking for structure because they're laying out an outline for their slave to follow, and they sit and watch and work with them to get that structure. So it's kind of structure on both sides. And, and there's several types of submissives on, or slaves. It's just a matter of what you need and what you're looking for. Some masters want many slaves because they want to fulfill different parts of who they are and who they want to be, and they want to help those slaves fulfill that in their heart, what they want to be. Okay, so is this similar to or different than the Gorian construct? It's kind of. Gorian, even though there are people out there that live a Gorian lifestyle, it's based on fantasy. And, and, and in living in that fantasy, it's a little bit different. Whereas in a master-slave dynamic, it's based in a reality and, and it works into the life. People live a master-slave dynamic 24-7 and they found out how to make that work for them. Some masters and slaves don't work 24-7. They work when they can fit it in, whereas they might only be master-slave on the weekends because they don't live together. You know, sometimes you can have a 24-7 and not live together, but it's difficult. It has to be negotiated and talked out. Got it. So if I'm reading between the lines, what I'm hearing you say is that the leather family construct is a master-slave dynamic model. Maybe not necessarily master-slave, maybe just master-submissive, but there's definitely a larger group that work uh, in a polyamorous dynamic together to serve one another on either side of the slash. That's very close. Other than a lot of times master-slave dynamic is a monogamous relationship with some people. The family dynamic is actually a separate issue versus the master-slave. Now, a lot of people in the MS community might not like what I'm going to say right now, but master and slave are titles. They go right along with top and bottom, and they go along with dominant and submissive. They're all ways of describing similar things, but some at a different level than others. Masters and slaves feel that they are at the top of the spectrum because they are looking at this as a relationship type thing and not as a play type relationship or a mix of play in that. Most of the time in master-slave dynamics, the play is a total separate thing, as well as sex. Oh, that makes sense to me. Okay, so... So if we're talking about slaves, submissives, and roles, and all this business, one of the inquiries I've been having for a while as we interviewed slaves or dominance is the last few slaves I've spoken to, some live 24-7, some do not. So as you put it, they may be weekend-only slaves, and that might be role-playing. But they espouse to be 24-7, which I'm not going to get in the middle of someone's dynamic to figure that out. 
But my interpretation of slave and the reason I chose submissive was slave having no agency. That's a huge difference than being a submissive where I'm getting to make agreements. So how, I guess, slave in 18th century and earlier were slaves with no agency. And is today now a construct of slave has a choice, has voice, and it's just a deeper level of submission. The slave having uh, no choice or nor quarter is a misnomer. Anybody who takes the title of slave nowadays in a relationship is saying so because of the title. There's always a choice for a slave. The choice, uh, the slave always has the power of no. If a slave says no, that ends the contract or minimally starts a negotiation for a new contract that will fit the needs uh, and the wants of the master and the slave. The master-slave dynamic is a contract made between two or more people to live out mutual values and interests and desires. So contract meaning verbal contract or always like a contract? I've seen slave contracts, of course. I mean, in writing, like a negotiated contract thereby, if no's used, then that contract is null and void and either a new one needs to be constructed or they are parting ways, basically. Some masters and slaves are far more formal than others. The formal ones, they want a contract, they want an exit agreement, they want they want everything they possibly need to make sure that there is a transition throughout the relationship. There could even be a timeline involved and it can be written. But not all contracts are written. Some of them are verbal. Some contracts are in outline. And the master and slave are allowed to fill in the voids. Like I said, you get uh, some masters are, and slaves are very, very structured. They need it. You know, it, it needs to be like a legal contract type thing. Gotcha. Talked about the training to mastery in a leather family. So is there a formal hierarchy? We understand from conversations we've had in the past that some of the leather model originated in the post-war military returnees, you know, who were seeking that military structure and rank and so forth. So it's been, you know, 70 years since the war. I'm wondering what the carryover is into the leather families now and what training is required to achieve titles in the leather community. Well, as we know, um, in the old days after the war, the um, the leather lifestyle brought out of that. The men that went to war felt this uh, compadreness, the companionship, the allegiance to their fellow men, including the rank and officer rank. And when they got out, they wanted to maintain that. They, they enjoyed the structure. They wanted the structure to keep on going. So they developed a hierarchy, almost like when you walk in the door and you want this, you want the master-slave dynamic, that you start at the bottom. It's like you're a private. And you work your way up. And instead of working up and earning like a private PFC corporal and work your way up, they got into earning leather. Like usually the first piece of leather you earn could be your boots. You know, they will give you a set of ratty, tatty, terrible boots. And it's up to you to straighten them out and clean them up and polish them up and make them look new and then wear them proudly, you know, or they might get a wristband. One of the higher levels to get is a belt. One of the highest things you can get as a slave or a master can be awarded a vest, a leather vest. 
especially if it has the patch of your group. Um, I have a leather vest that uh, I have from when I was in North Carolina from a group called Menomore. It wasn't a big group, and a lot of the leather groups weren't very big. But I was very proud. I still have it. It doesn't fit me, but I'll force myself to squeeze into it from time to time because I'm very proud of the work that the men before me did in that group and what I did for that. And the ultimate you can get for a master is a master's cap. And that's where other masters get together and realize your mastery and your accomplishments in the lifestyle. And they award you and present you with your master's cap. Uh, thank you for that. That's fascinating. That's the first time I've really understood when somebody sends a note, they say in leather. I've never really understood what that meant. Now I know. Well, they used to also call it Levi leather because you were allowed to wear jeans and leather. And if you look at the old drawings and paintings uh, from the 60s and 70s that show these very masculine men in leather, that's all they wore was jeans and leather and maybe a t-shirt. Most of the time, not a t-shirt. You know, when I first moved to this country in 77, the folks that I saw wearing leather vests without a t-shirt and jeans, that was mostly in the gay community. So has the leather community pushed into the gay community in a way that's different than it has in a leather family? The vast majority of the leather community started out of World War II with gay men. They had to live out the war closeted, not being able to say anything about their identity and who they were. And that made them feel even more oppressed. So when they came out, they found bars that they could gather in. A lot of them rode motorcycles. And they started the leather community that most of us know of now. And there was a, a lesbian leather community going on as well. But I think it started a little bit later, but I'm not sure. But they started, a lot of heterosexuals decided they wanted to get involved in leather. And they kind of started on their own because there was, a for a long time, there was a barrier between gay and straight because there was an issue. But they ended up bridging that gap. And now you'll go to a lot of MSC conventions. They're all heterosexual. The international master slaves over the last 20 years have been gay men, gay women, a gay man and a gay woman, heterosexual male, female, uh, sometimes more than one. But usually it's, it's two people that run for international master slave. But there's a whole diversity and it shows the growth of the leather and the MS community, how more and more accepting everybody is on each other's lifestyle and their wants and their needs. I definitely see that. Let's move on. Let's talk about some of the more interesting things that you shared at the outset. I'm particularly interested in how you use liquid nitrogen to play. We were speculating that you use it to brand. So why don't you fill us in? Well, you have to take into consideration that liquid nitrogen is 320 to 326 degrees below zero, which means it is colder to your body than boiling water is hot to your body. Uh, so there's a lot of precautions you have to take. Uh, one is you have to buy a container to carry it because it has to be vented. If you put it in a sealed container, eventually the liquid nitrogen, because it can't stay at 320 degrees below zero, expands and expands and turns to a gas to eventually that container will blow up. So there's precautions to make. There is a Maillard effect when you're playing with liquid nitrogen in the culinary industry, the Maillard effect allows something to dance across the hot spot. Like, you know, when you 
when you take a cast iron pan and you throw some water in it and the water dances but doesn't immediately evaporate, that's what liquid nitrogen does to your body. But if you let it sit in a crack or a crevice where it can stay there for a little while, it only takes a matter of seconds before it starts burning you and it can burn you very severely. So on the easy end of the spectrum, what I do with liquid nitrogen when I do a presentation or a class or I'm actually doing it is I take things like popcorn, cheese puffs, cheese balls, and I throw them in a bowl and I pour some liquid nitrogen in it. I mix it up and I serve it and it freezes these, these pieces of food so they become very brittle, but they're also very cold and they call it dragon's breath. So you put it in your mouth and automatically steam comes out, but it's not damaging to you. Then you can get into things where I'll breathe the vapor on people. So you feel this cold fog going across your body. And then I'll pour a little bit here and pour a little bit there. And you get that immediate sensation of the immediate cold that feels hot and then it goes away. I usually do play like that standing up because that way when it falls to the ground, if it lands by their feet, if they just move their feet around, it evaporates because it evaporates that quick. I'll pour it on them. I'll throw it at them. Like I've done where I've thrown a cup of liquid nitrogen towards somebody's pubic area and they get that big rush of cold that feels hot. And then they feel that fog come behind it. So they feel that cool. And sometimes if the, the people have pubic hair, it'll form little icicles. So it's kind of a funny kind of thing. I also do freeze branding where I'll take a branding iron that I've made and I'll put it in liquid nitrogen till it gets down to almost the temperature of liquid nitrogen. And I do a brand. It's usually three to five seconds. So it, it tends to not be permanent, even though each person is absolutely different on how they heal. Because some I've done three seconds and they've lasted. And, you know, five years later, they're still there. And some people, I've branded them. And a month later, they were like, can you do it 10 seconds? Can you do it longer? Can they wanted a permanent brand. And for some reason, their body wouldn't allow it. And the last thing I do is I actually was talking to a professor, uh, a person who's got their doctorate in chemistry. And she used to help her doctor put on shows for kids. And he used to take liquid nitrogen and put it in his mouth and spray it out. And it took me a long time to sit there and say, ah, let's give it a shot. And I found out that it wasn't as bad as people thought it would be. It just went in your mouth and automatically started expanding. And then you blow out all this vapor. So it can be very exciting, but also it's not something you're going to play with with somebody for a half an hour because the body starts getting numb and my fingers start getting numb because I'll scoop it up in my hand and things like that. And I think if I did it long enough, I might actually have some neural damage, which I don't and have no desire to. But as the body gets numb, then they're not getting the sensation that they might want. Wow. <laughs> I have so many questions. All right. So first of all, how do you make the choice at all to start playing with liquid nitrogen? Where did you learn about it and what was your exposure to it? This is an interesting story. I was at the Crucible and usually I'm kind of like the fire guy around here. And so I always have a table set up so people can experience fire or people that know me and like playing with me. I can set up scenes to play with them and things like that. And this guy from out of town showed up one day with this funny looking container. And we started talking and he was from, he spent some time in Florida, he spent some time like in Kentucky. And he asks if he can borrow one of my torches 
because he puts out the fire with liquid nitrogen. And I said, well, I got to see this. And I developed a friendship with him that night and he stayed the whole weekend. So I ended up actually playing with liquid nitrogen that weekend and enjoying it so much, I wanted to do it. But like every good kink, there's an expense. And one of the smallest liquid nitrogen doers that you can get, and they will not give you liquid nitrogen if you don't have one, is about $450. So that's a sizable thing to cough up. And it took me about a month to talk myself into it. And then I started playing with doing stuff on myself. Uh, My first liquid nitrogen freeze brand was on me. So I learned that. And I learned a lot of things over the years. I've probably been doing it about eight years now. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I'm only aware of liquid nitrogen around food. And I was really interested to hear you say that you might freeze some food, some common food, break it up. And then when you put it in somebody's mouth that moment, it's it's warmed up enough that it is no longer a problem. So how long does it take something like popcorn that you've broken up to warm up sufficiently that it doesn't cause damage when you put it in your mouth? With the popcorn and the cheese puffs and uh, and, uh, and the puff balls, you can, as soon as you mix it up, you can eat it because it really dissipates so quick. It just, it doesn't really permeate it. I mean, it liquid nitrogen looks like a fluid and it flows like a fluid, but it doesn't, act like a lot of other fluids. Like if you take popcorn or cheese puffs and you put it in water, they get soggy. So it permeates the the food. Whereas the liquid nitrogen doesn't really permeate the food. It kind of freezes the outside immediately. So that gives you the crunch and the coldness on the outside is what gives you the vapor. Now, I love cooking. And two of the things I like to do with liquid nitrogen is one is I love making ice cream and gelato. I've actually done it at some kink conventions. And the other thing I like to do is I like to cryo fry where I take a steak and I sous vide it to the temperature I want it to be. And then I cool it off and dry it off. And then I drop it in liquid nitrogen for 10 to 15 seconds. And then I drop it in a vat of hot oil for 10 or 15 seconds. The steak is still the temperature I want it to be, and it has this beautiful crust on the outside. Plus, it's very dynamic to watch because the liquid nitrogen is boiling, the hot oil is boiling, steam is coming off the liquid nitrogen. So it's a very crazy doctor, nutty professor kind of wild thing. I'm still not sure that I would ever let you throw a a jug of liquid nitrogen at my nuts. I don't think I could. I don't think I could do that. It always takes the first step. I feel like you could throw it at someone's pubic hair and then immediately brush the pubes and they are clean shaven, it seems like. (laughs) I've never tried that, but because the body is so warm, it it immediately starts heating up the pubic hair. And I think that's the reason why you get to icicles sometimes, because the end is still cold And it still will keep the water frozen, but it doesn't take long before it melts all off. Another thing I do is I soak towels in it. And because the liquid nitrogen doesn't actually soak into the towels and make them wet, it just makes them cold. And you can flog with it. And you get this steamy, smoky thing just floating all over the place with the flogging, and it feels real cold. So if you mix, sometimes I will do fire and then I'll put it out with a liquid nitrogen towel. So you're getting these huge temperature play dynamics. That's fascinating. So tell us how you play with fire generally. Well, I'm a real hands-on person and 
I use the typical wands, which I make myself because they're so darn cheap. And I apply it to the body and wipe it off immediately. Sometimes I might let it linger a little bit more. Sometimes I will draw a line and light it and let it travel. I, I have also beat it out, spanked it out, anything, anything you can think of on how to put out the fire. Other things that I use is I have a fire cane uh, that I use once in a while, and that can be kind of a thumpy kind of cane at the same time it's on fire. So there's things you can play with that cane. You can do different things. I also do a fireball. You know, I do cupping as well, and I'll do that a little bit more dynamic. I might get into cups sliding with it and get into different things. I might light the top of the, the cups for a dramatic effect. I also have a glove that I use that's good up to about 800 degrees that I soak in alcohol, and I light it, and I play with that fire. And this is a huge, It's the fire is the size of your hand. So I engulf the entire body in flame, but at the same time, put it out. So it gets to be this really exciting, it builds up heat, you feel hot and cold real quick and stuff like that. And I can pinch with it, I can punch with it, I can do all kinds of things that I enjoy and they enjoy. I also like to do it to music. I love the beat of a music and I get a rhythm going and the people that I play with feel that rhythm as well as I do. And I think we have a much better scene overall. I'm interested to know from your point of view what the benefit is of hot and cold play like this to sexuality. Like, How does it enhance the sexual experience to be the subject of fire play or the subject of liquid nitrogen play? Well, fire play is very primal. So it links into the primal instincts of, of all humans. Uh, it's part of some religions. And a lot of times that playing with the fire is, it can be very sensual to somebody. I mean, especially if I'm playing with genitals at the same time. If I have that glove on and I'm rubbing it across a vagina or a penis, they get aroused. You know, the fear arouses them a lot of times too, because a lot of them, when I start with fire with somebody, I start on their back so they don't get to see it. Because sometimes seeing it is scary enough to taint how they're actually going to feel. So I'll do the back so they can experience the feel. And then if they want to try it again at another time, I'll do their front. And then if I start playing with them and we've negotiated where I can touch genitals, then I will, you know, and they get to see that. And it, and it can be, like I said, it's fearful. It's arousing. And a lot of times I help partners get aroused for their other partners, which is something like a service top usually always does. With liquid nitrogen, I don't really see that. I just see going from extremes when I do hot and cold. And sometimes that can be arouse, arousing to some people, but for most people, they want they just want the sensation. They want to go through the, I made it through liquid nitrogen, or I made it through fire. It's like a challenge for them. So interesting. This has been really fascinating. Oh, yeah. Really enjoyed having you on, Ed. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your experience with us. It's been fascinating. I've never been involved in the kink on the West Coast. I know of it. I know there's a lot of it, and there's a lot of great stuff going on there. The farthest west I've gone for kink is I've gone to Las Vegas for uh, Sin in the City. I presented there one time, but most of the stuff I do is on the East Coast. If somebody was willing to make it easier for me to get out on the coast, I would love to go on out there and teach what I teach and do what I do and, and get to meet more people that are involved in both the leather lifestyle and kink. I think you're speaking our language. You know, we're, we're very excited for everybody to get vaccinated. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> and thanks for coming on. Much appreciated. I thank you too for inviting me. It was definitely a pleasure. And I hope we stay in touch. Oh, yeah. That's it for today. If you're interested in kinky relationship coaching, online domination, or if you'd like to sponsor the pod to keep it going, please visit our Patreon website at Lady Petra Playground. You can reach me via email at ladypetraplayground at gmail.com. Our music is composed and performed by Roger Ferguson, who can be found at rogerfergusonmusic.com. Till next time, cheers! Cheers!